We're going to be in the book of Jonah. If you brought your Bibles with you, you might want to open to that book. That's not the only place we're going to be, though. We are going to cover a lot of ground in Scripture. If you grew up in Sunday school, you know what a sword drill is. Today is going to feel like a sword drill. We are going to be all through the book. It's going to be good, and I believe God's got a lot to teach us. I would appreciate it if you would pray that I have a voice by the time this is over. I started talking at 6.30 this morning and haven't stopped, and so I'm, I'm starting to lose my ability to speak. Deanie would appreciate it if you would pray for that as well. It, it reminds me, as Brian was talking about Ezra during the time of Nehemiah, standing on the wall and reading from the Word of God four hours at a time. And they would take a break and come back four more hours of standing, listening to the Word of God. That's a preacher's dream. It really is. Just four hours of people standing, listening to what God has to say. Pretty cool thing. But I don't believe I have the voice for that, so rest easy. Before we get into the book of Jonah, I want to take you to San Antonio, Texas for some of Randy Frazee's teaching. He's on the preaching team at the Oak Hills Church. He has a unique way of describing how we should look at artwork. He really does. He says that there's two different ways of seeing it. He would start out by telling us that if we were to look at individual portraits or paintings of individuals, what we're really seeing are the lower pictures, the lower story. He would use paintings like this to illustrate his point. This is the Mona Lisa. Now, that original painting hangs in the Louvre Museum in Paris. If you were to go there and take a tour of the museum, the tour guide might stop you in front of that painting and give you some of the details behind it. He or she might tell you things like this, that in July of 1479, this lady was born. She was mar married to a wealthy silk merchant. He wanted to commemorate the birth of their child and the building of a new house in a special way, so he commissioned this painting. Lisa came and sat for it. The master artist painted her. Now, that's just the details behind the painting. Frazee's estimation would be this. As we look at her face, there's still a lot of unanswered questions. Those would be part of the lower story. You look into her eyes and it causes you to wonder, what is this lady thinking? What's going on in her life right now? That's some of the captivating parts of the Mona Lisa. I have a friend here in town that has a copy of this painting hanging in his house, and every time I'm there, I'm, I'm kind of captured by it and stare at her eyes and wonder exactly what Frazee is talking about. What, what is this lady thinking? Well, lower stories, individuals, portraits, paintings like this cause us to do that, to wonder about the details of a person's life. And it's not just the great works of art that hang in museums that cause that. It could even be pictures like this. This was just pulled off of the internet this past week. You look at this lady and can't help but wonder about her lower story. What's happening in her life? What she's thinking about as she rests her hand on her, or her head on her hand? What's going on in her life? What's going through her mind? The lower story, according to Frazee, deals with the here and now of our lives, the details of everything that we're facing. The lower story says that we go to work, we make money, we pay our bills, we go and visit the doctor, we deal with health issues, we deal with relational issues. That's all part of the lower story. It deals with the temporal, the here and the now. But Frazee says there's a different way of seeing artwork as well. He would use this from the Sistine Chapel to illustrate it. 
Now, most of you know portions of this story. Michelangelo painted all of this across the ceiling and down the walls of the chapel. He was commissioned to do that. According to Frazee, what we're seeing now is the upper story. It's a conglomeration of lower stories, a conglomeration, a melding of individual stories. Even if you know all of the history behind what happened at the Sistine Chapel, what you might not know is this. There are 300 different individuals from the Bible painted on the ceiling and the walls of that chapel. Each one of them telling a portion of God's story. Starts with Adam and Eve, and it goes all the way to the resurrection of Christ. That is all painted within here. And he would say, Frazee would, that that's part of the upper story. Each one of those 300 individuals becomes a part of the lower story, the individual aspects of it. But when it comes together, when the lower story meets the upper story, you begin to see God's plan and how you fit within it. Frazee would go on to say that we're just like that. You have a lower story, the here and now details of your life, the temporal aspects of what it takes for you to get through every day. But your lower story is a part of God's upper story. You are a part of His mural. How you see yourself within it is what matters. How you find your way into that upper story really matters. But most of us find ourselves wired to think only in terms of the lower story the temporal, the here and the now, rather than focusing on the eternal. But if we can get to a place where we change our vision and we're no longer just looking at the lower story, but instead we start to focus on the upper story, the upper picture, God's plan and God's purposes, we begin to see brand new things. We really do. It struck me this past week that in the book of Jonah, we have three chapters that are a part of the lower story and one that's a part of the upper story. Jonah chapters 1, 2, and 4 are all part of the lower story. Those are the details of Jonah's life. That's what was happening in his life at that particular moment. Lower story chapters. But chapter 3? Chapter 3 is the upper story. That is God's plan. That's the reason the whole book exists. We can learn a lot from it. Not just from Jonah but from those that he preaches to, you will begin to see God's upper story all the way back in the Old Testament in just this one chapter. It's pretty amazing. I want to take you there this morning, but in order to get there, I've got to give you a little bit of background again. Jonah chapter 1 and 2 records what I would refer to as the incidentals of the story in order to get Jonah 2 chapter 3. Here's the way that would look. God spoke to Jonah, Jonah ran, God sent a storm, Jonah went swimming, God sent a fish, Jonah repented, God had the fish get rid of Jonah, Jonah brushed off the fish vomit and went and preached. Now there it is, that's the lower story of chapters 1 and 2. Then we get to chapter 3, and chapter 3 lays it all out for us. But here's a little more history for you as we get there. Jonah was preaching during the period that we would refer to as the divided kingdom. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. During the divided kingdom, which lasted roughly 300 years, a little bit more than that, there was a 208-year period where Israel and Judah had 38 kings. Five of those kings were called good. The rest of them, the Bible would declare as evil. They were just evil. 
Jonah had to preach during that time. He was God's prophet during times that, that most of us would not have even wanted to have been alive. Let me show you how it started. This is back in the book of 1 Kings. Keep your finger there in Jonah chapter 3, but go with me to the book of 1 Kings. Chapter 12, verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam. He and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us. Now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if today you'll be a servant of these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. In essence, that was his cabinet, his political cabinet, the group of people that he chose to advise him. Listen to how wise they were. Verse 9, he asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father has put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, Tell these people who have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Tell them, My little finger is thicker than my father's wrist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam, as the king had said, Come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy, I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. That's an evil king. It really is. He was listening to the young men around him, none of them older than he was, none of them with more experience than he had, and that's what they came up with. And that set the course for the divided kingdom. Rehoboam and Jeroboam would be the ones who would divide it. Again, Israel to the north, ten tribes. Judah to the south, two tribes. The kingdom would divide after Solomon, and it would go through a long period of, of strife and battle and conflict, all because of kings like this. Now, to give you a little bit of perspective, the United States of America has been around for roughly that same amount of time, a little over 200 years. We've had 44 presidents. We might look at some of those presidents and say they have been less than stellar, but we probably would struggle to say they were pure evil. Well, that's what the Bible said about all but five of these kings. It was a heavy yoke that rested on them. Now, Nineveh was not in the Holy Lands. It was not part of the Promised Land. It wasn't in Israel or Judah. It set outside of the protection of God. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian kingdom. They weren't living with God. They weren't following God. There was no moral compass. The things they did were an absolute abomination, just an abomination. History would record that they killed men and women without cause. They killed teenagers just because they could. They killed little babies, not because of sacrifices to false gods, but because of population control. They would just go through the streets and kill them. And if they really wanted to punish somebody, they would run them through with a spear and then take them outside the city gates and leave them to rot in the sun until they died in the high desert. 
That's the kind of place that Nineveh was. That was the Assyrian kingdom. It was more evil than anything Israel or Judah had ever thought about. They were a terrible, terrible group of people. And God says to Jonah, I want you to go there and preach. Can you understand why Jonah didn't want to? God, they don't need to hear about you. I don't want to go share a message with them. I don't even think they deserve to hear it. So Jonah ran. He went the other way. And then you remember everything that happened. So God says, I want you to get to them. They're Gentiles. They're not even Hebrew. They're not Jewish. But you get to them. It is one of the first pictures of God carrying His grace to the Gentiles that we find in all of the Bible. That's why Jesus would direct the Pharisees and the Jewish people in the New Testament to look back at the time of Jonah and the signs of Jonah because he was showing them what was to come. The Jews are going to reject me. They're going to do their thing. I'm going to carry the gospel. I'm going to carry the message of grace and forgiveness to the Gentiles. That was what was happening when Jonah went to Nineveh. When he gets there, he does exactly what God says. Let's go now to that book. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. Let's stop there for just a second. There were roughly, according to the historians and the archaeologists that have discovered the city now, sitting right on the banks of the Tigris River. It's there. Archaeologists has proven, have proven the existence of it. There were roughly 600,000 inhabitants of that city. The walls around the city were 60 miles in circumference. It was 60 miles across for 600,000 people to live there. It was very important. It was the, king, uh, the capital of the kingdom, as we've already said. There was a 20-mile period of the wall or section of the wall that had 1,500 guard towers in it. They were really protecting this city. Jonah got there, and he preached. He went all through the city. It took him three days to preach in every one of the neighborhoods to declare God's message for everyone to hear. Verse 4. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's one of the shortest messages in all of the Bible. As far as we know, that's the entire message he preached right there. Everywhere that he went for three days, same message over and over and over again. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Listen to what happens. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Now that's preaching. Just a few short words. One sentence. That's all it took for them to respond. Biblical scholars have wondered how that happened for years and years and years. Here's some of what they've come up with. Some believe that there were witnesses on the beach when Jonah was vomited out by the fish. They saw the whole thing happen. And the story of Jonah spread through all of the land. So when Jonah showed up there, they were ready to listen. This guy had been in the belly of the fish and he was puked out on the beach. He survived the whole experience. You better pay attention. There are other scholars that believe it goes a little deeper than that. They believe that while he was in the fish, his body was bleached by the acids from the belly of the fish. His hair was bleached and all of that bleaching had actually permeated his skin and he stunk like the inside of a fish. So according to them, when Jonah got there, they all knew who he was. He was pasty white and smelled like fish. So they paid attention. Whatever the case might be, he preached this short little pointed message and they responded. The message in essence sounds like this. The clock is ticking. 
and you are about to be handed over. Some of the translations of the Bible actually use that terminology. Nineveh is about to be handed over. God would say the same thing in Romans chapter 1 and 2. He would say about groups of people that they had actually done so many heinous things that God handed them over. They were turned over to their choices and their desires. That was what was going on in Nineveh. God was about to hand them over. They repented. Everything changed. Verse 5 again. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When they put on sackcloth, it was a sign of humility. It was a way of saying, God, we're a long ways from you, and we need to change that. We want to come back close to you. And they rolled in ashes. It was the same thing. Sackcloth and ashes was this visible demonstration of humility. They humbled themselves and drew near to God. Pick up with me then in verse 6. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Now, that's the whole story. The upper story. God said the clock is ticking on you and if you don't do something awfully fast, it's not going to be good. The outcome is not going to be what you want. The people heard the message. They responded to it. They repented from the greatest to the least. They responded and everything changed for them. Now there's three things I want you to see from this. We'll go through them pretty quick. So you're going to have to stay with me. The first one is this. Sin is no respecter of people, place, or position. Sin is no respecter of people, place, or position. You heard it right there from Jonah chapter 3. From the greatest to the least. From the least to the greatest. They responded to the message that they heard. And they responded by acknowledging their sin. And that's the way it has to be. For whatever reason in modern Christianity, we have gotten it into our minds that there are certain people that don't sin, that don't struggle the way we do. And that is not the case. Sin is no respecter of people, place, or position. Everybody wrestles with it. Everybody struggles with it. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 lays it out pretty plainly. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I was thinking about that verse of Scripture the other day and just sitting at my computer, I started writing a little bit. This is what I came up with. Makes sense in my mind. The rich sin, the poor sin, the educated sin, the uneducated sin. Men sin, women sin, children sin, adults sin. Red, yellow, black, and white, all sin. Mechanics sin, just like dentists do. Doctors sin, and so does the pizza delivery guy. People in high society sin, people living under bridges do too. Men in mines sin, men in high-rises sin. Women in offices sin, women on highways sin. High school students sin, people in retirement homes sin. The list could just keep on going. And it could. It could. Because everybody struggles with it. So the message that Jonah was carrying into Nineveh wasn't that as a city there were certain ones of them that were doing wrong things. He walked into the city and said, All of you have. And the clock is ticking. If you don't do something about it in 40 days, you're going to be handed over to it. 
you will be overturned and left to your own devices. That's just good preaching. It really is, because the same thing is true for us. When we recognize that we are sinning, the next thing that we have to recognize is that the clock is ticking, and we have to do something about it. We have to respond to what we have learned. That's the way it works. And if we'll respond to it, God is ready to respond to us and do something about it. Now, in our modern society, one of the things that we wrestle with the most in sin is what we referred to last week as spiritual narcissism, a fascination or a fixation with ourselves. It has caused generation after generation to become very discontent with everything that they have. Now, that's not a new symptom of sin. It's been around for a long time. I want to take you to the Old Testament book of Haggai, because I know you read from Haggai all the time. It'll be really easy for you to find. Actually, if you go to Malachi, turn back to the left, you'll run into Haggai in a couple of books. Haggai chapter 1. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, by the way. Haggai chapter 1, verse 5. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. That was symptomatic of Israel during those days, even during the days of Jonah. So if that was symptomatic of God's people, look at what it was like for people outside of God. This narcissism, this fixation with what we want had overtaken everybody. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? We have a whole country full, whole world full of narcissistic people that are fixated on themselves and what they want. God has an antidote to that, though, and that's all within the upper story. The upper story says when we figure this out, even contentment can become a part of our life. Listen to this from Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Paul writes, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Paul's lower story says, I figured something out, and it comes from the upper story. In Christ, in Christ, I can actually be content. I can battle against all of the sin in my life that causes me to say over and over and over again, I want more, I want more, I want more. And in Jesus, get to a place where I can say, I'm all right with where I'm at. I'm all right with what I have. I'm all right in Jesus with dealing with what is around me right now. It changes our view of the lower story to cause us to see the upper story. And the upper story then allows us to say, it isn't about me, it's about God. And when we get to that point, my friends, here's what happens. Here's what happens. We quit wrestling with sin as much as we used to. Because now it's about God. I want to live for Him, not myself. I want to live in the upper story. Oh, the lower story is necessary. But I want to live in the upper story. And sin loses some of its hold on us because of Jesus. When that happens, we discover this. That repentance, and this comes right out of Jonah chapter 3, repentance is still the way to change the course of our lives, to face our sin and say, I don't want to do that anymore. And through Jesus, I don't have to. 
through what God has done for me and the love that He has demonstrated, I don't have to. That's the upper story. I don't have to do this. And if we will truly repent, what we will see is that that type of repentance can actually change the course of a nation. Can you imagine that? That type of repentance can change the course of a nation. It changed the city of Nineveh, 600,000 people. They lived in a time of peace for 400 years. They lived with God for 400 years. Gentiles with no godly backing lived with God for 400 years because they repented. They accepted what God offered. Well, the Bible teaches that that's available even today. Go with me to the book of 2 Chronicles. Chapter 7, verse 14. This passage of Scripture has become very popular since 9-11. 2 Chronicles, chapter 7, verse 14. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. You have no idea how much I want the United States of America to pay attention to that passage. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven. If they'll turn from their wicked ways, I will heal their land. That's what Nineveh had to hear, and they responded to it. And in the United States of America, if we would hear the same thing, we could respond to it. I had a conversation with a friend of mine a couple weeks ago about tipping points. He believes that the United States has crossed the tipping point. It's impossible for us to return in his estimation. I don't know that he's wrong. I don't, because we have drifted a long ways from God. We really have. But I believe that if we follow the principles of 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, revival could break out in this land. And if revival breaks out in this land, repentance follows. And if repentance follows, God could heal our land and change the course of our nation. But what we see all the way back in Jonah chapter 3 is this. Repentance changes the course of the city, changes the course of the nation, but it started by changing the course of the individuals from the greatest to the least. They repented of their sin. Things turned around for them. And it still works that way. It really does. Do you need proof of that? Let me show you how this works. We're going to go to the New Testament again, to the book of 1 John. I told you we were going to cover some ground in the Bible today. I wasn't kidding. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It works that way. It does. If we will confess our sins, God will be faithful. He will forgive us of those sins, and the Bible says He'll purify us from all unrighteousness. God deals with sin. There are a lot of people, though, that would say it's too late for me. We were watching a movie the other night as a family, and we saw an older guy say to a younger guy, I have too much blood on my hands. It's too late for me. The best I can hope for is to save you. There are a lot of people when they are confronted with Jesus Christ in a relationship with God that will say the same thing. I've done things that God cannot forgive. There's too much blood on my hands. My friends, that is not true. That is not true. In fact, when we say things like that, we rob Jesus of what he did on the cross. 
If you believe that your sins are too great for the blood of Jesus Christ to cover them, then you are stealing from Him what He did. How dare you do that? How dare any one of us do that? Your sin is not so great that it can't be covered by the blood of Jesus. But you might say, preacher, I'm old. I've done a lot of sinning. There is no way in the world that God is still going to look at me and and say that He loves me and that He will welcome me into the kingdom. I would tell you that you need to read the Bible. Well, here, let's just do that. We're going to go to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 1. These are Jesus' words. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for a day, or for the day, and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. That is a great story. Now, I can say that because I'm one of those people that was hired first. I'm one of those people that's been a Christian all my life. I went to work for the Lord. I don't even know how old I was. I was baptized when I was 10 years old, but that was just because I'd grown up in the church. And now it was time to make a commitment to the Lord, my own commitment. My parents wasn't good enough anymore. It was time for me to make my own commitment. I did at 10 years old. I've never been away from the church. I was hired first thing in the morning and sent out into the field. But do you know what my favorite thing in the world is to watch? It's when 11th hour people come to the Lord. That is one of my favorite things in all of the world. They have lived a life apart from God, and now all of a sudden, as they are confronted with their own mortality, they choose to do something about it, and they give their lives to Christ. And here's what the Bible just taught. The reward that I will receive is the same as the reward that they will receive, even though I was hired first thing in the morning, and they came at the 11th hour, and I'm thrilled about that. I am thrilled about that. I'm just curious, how many first thing in the morning people do we have in this room? You've been Christian all your life. Hold your hands up real high. All right, now I'm going to ask you to just throw an amen in if you really believe this along with me. How many of you would say amen to the fact that 11th hour conversions are some of the coolest there is? Amen. Amen. Now, how many of you would say that you wish they weren't paid the same? You see, people that understand Jesus Christ would never say that. But there are a lot of people that don't understand Jesus that say it doesn't work. I can't come to know Jesus at the 11th hour or the 9th hour. Yes, you can. It is not too late. When Jonah went into Nineveh, he he preached the message of God to everyone there. And they all responded. From the least to the greatest, from the youngest to the oldest, they all responded. 
Now, somebody might say things along these lines. I have no faith background. I have no history with God. So it's impossible for me to come. God has never loved me, and I have never loved him. Well, first and foremost, God has never quit loving you. He always has. He's just waited for you to respond. And even if you have no faith background, no faith history, then you need to know that there's a place for you in the kingdom. We're going to go back to the book of 2 Chronicles again. Chapter 6, verse 32. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name. There's even a place for people with no faith background, no history. You come and you turn your attention towards God and your face towards his holy temple which today is his son Jesus Christ. And everything changes. Everything changes. Repentance is the key to the whole thing. Lord, I don't want to live this way anymore, outside of your protection. I want to live under your protection. I want to live with you and be with you and experience all that you have. So when the time comes, I'll receive the right reward. That reward is entrance, a welcoming entrance into his kingdom. You see, here's what you have to know from Jonah chapter 3. Sin is not a respecter of people, but repentance is the path everyone must follow because, here's the third thing, God has compassion for his children. And he still does. Every one of them that he has ever created, God has compassion for his children. Jonah chapter 3 says that God had compassion on those that lived in the city of Nineveh and he relented. He changed his course. He lifted his judgment off of them. The clock was ticking and God lifted his judgment off because of their response. God still has compassion for his children. The greatest act of compassion ever was Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. When God said, I love these people so much that I will send my son, I will send my son to die for them. That was the greatest act of compassion the world has ever known. Now, in order to illustrate how all of that works, let me do it this way. I have never pawned or sold anything in a pawn shop. Never done that. I bought a few things, but I've never sold anything there. If I understand it right, this is the way it works if you decide to go pawn something. You take your possession of whatever value into the pawn shop. They give you pennies on the dollar for it and 120 days to come back and redeem it. That's the pawn word. You come back to redeem it. Now, when you come back to redeem it, you pay the original price that they gave you plus exorbitant interest. The interest is typically so high that according to that theologically sound TV show, Pawn Stars, 90% of the people that pawn things in pawn shops never come back to redeem it because they can't afford it. They can't afford the original price and they certainly can't afford the interest. When you choose a life of sin, here's what you're doing. You are pawning your soul. The thing of the greatest value that you have, you are pawning it for pennies on the dollar. That's all it is. When Jesus died on the cross, you listen to this, my friends, listen to this. Jesus redeemed your soul. He paid the price plus the interest. He redeemed you. 
He bought you back from that. This is the way the Bible would describe that in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. God redeemed you. He paid the price through His Son. He bought you back. You want to know how He did that? Well, Romans chapter 5, verse 8 lays it out. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how He did it. That's how it worked. While you were still a sinner, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for us. He redeemed us, purchased you, paid the original price plus interest, and bought you back. And I don't care how great your sin is. I don't care what you have done. It does not matter. The grace of God covers it. There is nothing that you have done worse than the Ninevites. And God extended His grace to them. There is nothing worse, or you have done nothing worse than the people sitting around you. And God redeemed you. It doesn't matter how bad your sin was. It doesn't matter how extreme it was. God took care of it. He bought you back. Same thing that he did for the Ninevites. He extended grace and mercy to them. Even though the clock was ticking, they responded within three days. They heard the message. They did what they needed to do. We should do the same. For as long as I can remember, I have loved maps. I've always loved maps. I like atlases so that I can turn to different places and see things that I've never seen before. Just individual maps, you typically only have one or two, but the atlas, man, that gives you access to all kinds of stuff. I like to see where I'm at and how to get other places. I I love the overview that maps give you so that you can see everything. It's pretty cool. Today we live in the world of GPS. That's robbed us of the map. It really has. A map is an upper picture type of thing. That's the upper story. Here's everything that's available. GPS, that's a lower picture. All you have to care about is where you're at and where you're going. The GPS takes us out of the upper picture. So maps, maps are the way to go. Now I say all of that and I have GPS on my phone. I use it all the time. I have GPS in our car. We use it all the time, but I still feel a little bit robbed, partly because prior to GPS on the phone or in the car, I used my wife. She held the map, told us what to do. And I have to tell you, she's just as accurate as any GPS you've ever used. She was really good. And I kind of missed that. The, you know, if you've ever traveled this way, the, the tension and the adrenaline of, tell me where to turn, tell me where to turn. Is this our turn? Okay, I'm going to take the turn. Or, oops, we missed it. And instead of Tina saying recalculating, she just says, you missed it. And we got to figure this out. And she'd find your way back. Anyway, in the medieval times, maps were not what we are familiar with. They didn't contain all the roads that went everywhere. What they did was show an overview. They used biblical landmarks and historical landmarks, most of those out of different religions, to demonstrate where different things were at. But at the center of every map in medieval times was the city of Jerusalem, and in the city of Jerusalem was the temple. The reason maps in the medieval times were drawn out like that was to show everybody how far they were from the temple, how far away from God they were. Those are pretty interesting maps as well. Here's God, here's you. You need to get here. Because during those days, this is what they believed. Heaven and earth came together at the temple. 
Heaven came down and earth went up and they intersected at the temple. And if you were a long ways away from the temple, it meant you were a long ways away from God. So on the maps, they would put the temple right in the center of it and then you would find wherever you were at. And it was a demonstration of how far you were from experiencing heaven on earth. How far away you were from God. On the New Testament, those circles could look like this. Heaven comes down and earth comes up and they intersect through Jesus. You have to determine where you're at in that. How far away from Him are you? How much distance is there? Because know this from Jonah chapter 3. If you don't know anything else, you know this. The clock is ticking. The clock is ticking. And the time will come when it could be too late. The clock is ticking. So you have to do something about it. You have to respond to God's message. God's, res- God's message today is one of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all the way back in the book of Jonah in the Old Testament, God said, I'm going to take it to the Gentiles. Folks, that's us. That's us. I'm looking around this room and I do not see one Jew in this room, which by the way, you can tell. There aren't any Jews here. Gentiles, Ninevites, that's us. God loved us the same way He loved them. If your lower story is not a part of God's upper story, you are missing out on a lot. You're the one who has to determine that. How far is your lower story from God's upper story? You get it there. You get into Christ you intersect those circles that you might experience heaven on earth and walk with God. There is nothing better. Nothing better. And it's eternal. Your lower story, temporal. The clock ticks on it. God's upper story, it lasts forever. Experience it. Why don't you stand and pray with us? If you'd like to talk to somebody about a relationship with Jesus Christ, we can do that. If you'd like to talk to somebody about a relationship with the church, we can do that. That's what started just a few minutes ago. Maybe you want to pray with somebody. We know that people walk into this place with heavy burdens. We're fully aware of that. The elders know that. The staff knows that. We, uh, we know that sometimes you come to church just trying to survive. If that's the case, why don't you pray with somebody? Leave those burdens here. Let God take care of them. You don't have to take them home with you. Just leave them here. Go pray with somebody. Tell them what's going on and together tell God what's going on. The greatest burden anybody will carry is the burden for salvation. If you need to to get that taken care of, today could be the day. I pray you'll respond. And again, the church is the same. If you want to talk to somebody about the church, you can do that. Just go over to this door, my right, your left. Somebody will be there, they'll meet you. Let's pray together. Well, Father, the message that Jonah preached in Nineveh, same message that we have to hear today it takes a few more words than what Jonah used well maybe it doesn't but it's still the, the message that we have to hear I pray Lord that you'll help us all respond to it I pray that you'll show us where we're at in relation to you help us take a look at a spiritual map so that we can see and then Lord draw us close by our own willingness draw us close In Jesus' name, amen.